Well, as Greg said, we are in Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at the call of God to Abraham. Now, the thing is that uh, Abraham lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. It was, uh, back then it was known as Sumer, then it became known as uh, Chaldeans, we know it as Babylon, modern-day Iraq. And um, before we get into his call, we need to look at Joshua chapter 24. Verse 2. Sometimes we get the idea that uh, hearing God was easy for those guys, the Old Testament prophets, uh, the patriarchs, the apostles. We think that it was easier for them to hear God than it is for us. Well, it wasn't. They were just ordinary people like the rest of us with the same issues that we face. And... Joshua 24 tells us a little bit about about the context out of which um, Abraham was called. Now, Sumer was one of the most advanced societies and cultures of the day. They had a tremendous irrigation system, a pretty high level of of architecture. They had ziggurats. These were step pyramids um, built up. They had walled cities. They were centers of trade and commerce. They were very much pagan culture. Lots of gods and goddesses that they worshipped. So Joshua chapter 24, as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, he reminds the Israelites of their history, starting with verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river, that's the Euphrates River, led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. So he's telling us that from the very beginning here, Terah and his family, including Abraham and Nahor and Haran, um, they were idolaters. These were pagan people coming out of a pagan culture. And it was such a, a radical thing that God was doing with these men. God began to make himself known. We don't know how, we don't know in what way, but they were open to hear. And they believed it enough to act upon it. And this was the beginning of the creation of faith in the life of Abraham. Now that creation of faith never stopped. God was continually through the different experiences that he led him through, through the different sacrifices he was called upon to make throughout his lifetime. God was continually increasing and adding to that faith as his faith was continually being challenged and being tested. And it's through the challenges And through the testing that the revelation of who God was came through very strongly and clearly. And it was through God showing himself faithful to the call that he had placed in their lives that they began to experience being able to trust him, which is what faith is all about. 
So he was coming from a pagan culture and society. Uh, not a whole lot different than our society in which we're living today. Because our country is largely pagan. It really is. We don't have to look too far to see that, do we? Um, with the influences and the, the, the way the culture is trying to shape us and mold our thinking and the way that we act and the way that we respond, the attitudes that we have towards each other, and mostly it's negative. And so Abraham was familiar with that. And it's in that context um, that God was speaking to Abram after they got to Haran and after Terah died. God continued to speak to Abraham. Abraham, they started off with uh, Ur of the Chaldees, which was down here. They went up up here to Haran, which was up in the north, modern-day Turkey. And that's where Terah died, and that's where Nahor stayed. But Abraham, God was telling, I want you to go uh, further south into the land of Canaan. So that's where, that's where we pick up the story here in chapter 12. So the Lord says to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Now he's never going to know where he's going until he gets there. He didn't give him an address. didn't even give him a country. just said, I want you to go to the area of Canaan. When you get there, I'll let you know. Now he was calling him to have a radical change by leaving his country, his people, his father's household. In that day in society, that was all the things that gave him his identity. Now even today, when you first meet somebody, uh, what are the things you want to know about them? Where are you from? Want to know your name? I know sometimes, uh, along with where you're from, uh, what's your background? And we want to know where you're going, right? So these are things that we normally ask and think about. It's those same things that gave identity and purpose, identity, um, to the people of Abraham's day. And God was saying, I want you to leave all of that behind. For him, it's the Old Testament counterpart to 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, everything's become new. And so he's telling Abraham, I want you to leave all these things that define you, that give you purpose and direction and value, all that behind, go to where I tell you. And what he's telling him, promising him in this, is I'm going to give you a new identity a second start. And so he makes that clear in verses 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great as opposed to the people of Babylon, Babel, who tried to make their own name. They didn't want God, what God called them. They wanted to make their own. God's calling Abraham, you trust me, God says, and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the call is not so much to be blessed, but to be a blessing, to be the vehicle of God's blessing for other people. And that, he says, is going to be your new identity, your new value. Now, sometimes he succeeded in that. Other times he failed miserably. And he was more of a curse than a blessing. 
to Pharaoh of Egypt or, or uh, Abimelech down in Gerar um, because he had a lack of faith. But the call was there and God corrected him when he failed and said, no, you're to be a blessing, not a curse. And after a hundred years, Abraham was getting it right. And when he failed, God didn't leave him. He picked him up and said, no, not a curse, a blessing. That's who you are. That's who you're supposed to be. And so this was really a, a redemption story. Redeeming Abraham and his family, creating a new people out of one couple. And it's an amazing story because um, as Greg was sharing with the children, he didn't have the Bible. Uh, not the New Testament, not the Old Testament. It was a direct relationship between God and Abraham. And the thing is that because of the Old Testament, because of the New Testament, and especially because of the presence of Christ, we have an opportunity to make that relationship deeper and clearer and more personal because Christ can live within us now. And the Holy Spirit can lead us and guide us in a more direct way. So God is saying, will you trust me to give you a new identity? It's a question he not only asked Abraham, he asked of you and I as well. And so God begins to create a people of God. And over the next uh, couple of thousand years, God is working through generation after generation after generation, each generation playing their part in God's plan. And I'd like us to look over at the book of Ruth. You got Joshua, then you got Judges, and then you have Ruth. Ruth is placed there because the context of the book of Ruth is the book of Judges. It's at the same time period, the same culture that the book of Judges was written in. Out of that culture, out of that same time period, comes the book of Ruth. So who is Ruth? Who is Ruth? Pardon? No, not Ruth. She was, ultimately became an ancestor of Jesus. She was a Moabite. So um, what happened was that during the time of the Judges, and the time of Judges was a real critical time in the history of Israel. They almost lost it all right there. Uh, they had this whole series, Book of Judges, of ups and downs, which uh, would go through generations here. One generation would be up, the next one would be down. And the um, problem was the ups never got so high, but the downs kept getting increasingly lower. So when you got to Judges chapter 17 through 21, the last chapters, uh, what's going to happen is that they are in a downward spiral, and the people of God basically are in rebellion against God and, and there's a great confusion about even who God is among the Israelites. It's in that context that we have the story of the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth was pagan. What happened in Bethlehem was they had a famine. Uh, and the famine was so severe that a man by the name of Elimelech uh, took his wife Naomi and his two sons and they moved to Moab. It wasn't a great distance, but it was across the um, Jordan River. 
and um, over by, on the other side of the Dead Sea there, where they had food, and they stayed there for about 10 years. Now, during that 10-year period, the two boys were old enough that they grew up and they married, but they both married Moabite women. They didn't go back home to get married, right there in their context. And during that 10-year period, all three of the men died. Elimelech died, and his two sons died, which left three widows with no support. Now, in that society and culture, if you were a widow, you needed to have somebody else you could marry, or you needed to have sons to take care of you, or you needed to go back to your mom and dad's house to take care of you, because if you were on your own, more than likely you were going to starve to death. It was a hard place to be for widows. Well, Naomi was old, but the two younger women, the two younger widows, were not. And so they heard that the famine was over in Benjamin, over in Bethlehem, so uh, in Judah. So Naomi says, well, I'm going to go back home. Uh, at least I have Kim, Kim's folks there that maybe can take care of me. The two younger widows said, we will go with you because they were... They had become such a close family, and they loved one another and cared for each other. And so Naomi says, no, uh, you need to go back to your parents' house and find you another husband. You're young enough, and God will take care of you in that way. Uh, I'm old. Nobody to watch over me. I need to go home where my, hopefully my kinsmen will help me. Well, Orpah left with weeping, and she went back. But Ruth makes this very strong statement in chapter 1, verse 16. Because what she said in verse 15, Naomi, look, say it, Naomi, she's talking to um, Ruth, your sister-in-law, Orpah, is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Did you catch that? She's going back to her people and her gods. You need to go with her. But Ruth replies, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. So she's making the same kind of commitment that Abraham made, isn't she? Leaving her home, leaving her family, leaving her gods, the old gods that she knew were ineffective, and committing herself to a new identity and a new location with new people. She was going to be the foreigner, the stranger in a strange culture. And she was committing herself to a new way of living, following a new God. The book of Ruth is a redemption story. That's why it's here. It gives the history, tells us about uh, she's going to become the, the great-great-grandmother of um, David, and then later on she gets a place in the lineage of Jesus. But this pagan woman is making a commitment, just like a pagan Abraham made a commitment to a call from God, and they're leaving everything, everything they are leaving for a new identity which God will create for them. Well, let's go to the New Testament. In the book of Luke, start off, Luke chapter 5. 
We can start with verse 11. This is the calling of some of the first disciples. And they had this miraculous catch of fish. And Simon Peter falls at Jesus' feet. He says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus tells him not to be afraid that he's going to catch men from now on. So he says in verse 11, So they, that's Peter and his brother Andrew, and their cousins, who are also their partners, James and John, they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. So they're leaving their jobs, they're leaving their homes, they're temporarily leaving their families, everything, to follow Jesus. Later on in that same chapter, Luke 5, verse 28, um, Jesus is coming by, there's a tax collector there, one of these hated guys in his own culture, named Levi. And Jesus walks up to him, and he says, follow me, Jesus said to him. In verse 28, Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. So you get the picture all these people have um, walking with the Lord. The grace of God is free. But to accept it and walk with the Lord, what does it cost? Everything. Everything you have. Everything you are. Everything you ever hope to be. In Luke chapter 14... Jesus talks about this, verses 25 through 27. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So he's saying that to walk with the Lord, it's a call just like to Abraham. It's a, the same kind of desire that God put in the heart of Ruth. Lord, I will follow you, and I will gladly give everything. Well, we also have the personal testimony of a couple of men here. Um, I want to look at Mark chapter 10. This is Mark's account of the rich young ruler. You remember this was a wealthy man. Uh, Luke says he was one of the rulers of the synagogues. So he was a young, influential man in his community, very rich, uh, a powerful social figure and religious figure. And he goes to Jesus with a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, basically, uh, you've got the teaching, the revelation of God as to how we're to live in the Old Testament. You need to do that. And the young man said, I've done that. Maybe. But Jesus didn't argue with him. It says in verse 21 of Mark 10, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he loved him enough he told him the truth. You need to love people if you're going to tell them the truth. One thing you lack, he said, 
Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Gave him the same invitation he gave to Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the disciples. Well, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus begins to tell them, saying, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven because the pull of our riches, the pull of our possessions is very strong, as we all know. But one of the things that's taking place in this country, you know, we've had a lot of natural disasters, haven't we, this past year? Fires and floods and storms. And a lot of people have lost what? Everything. And guess what? They become, many of them become stronger, better people. Families get drawn closer. Communities pull together and help each other. And those communities become stronger than before the calamity. Do you think God is trying to tell us something? It's time to get our priorities right. It's not things. So Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven because the tendency is to trust our bank account or social security or our savings or a pension or it's easier to trust those things than God. But all of those things in our country right now are being challenged and drifting away, aren't they? And all those things we thought was so secure we find can be removed very quickly. So he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples said, man, uh, who then can be saved? If the rich, because they felt the rich were extra blessed by God. They said, man, if even those people can't be saved, what's the, how, how's anybody going to be saved? Jesus said, well, that's a very good question because with man, it's totally impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's why Jesus came. Now Peter speaks up, voicing the thoughts of every one of them. Uh, normally when you start talking about cost and you start talking about sacrifice or direction and you start saying or dividing up teams and you know, you're the last one there, what's the first question that comes to your mind? What about me? <laughs> Where do I fit in this picture? And so Peter says, we have left everything to follow you. So does that mean we're in? <laughs> uh, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So it's a pretty strong promise, isn't it? We think about the cost of the discipleship that Jesus said. Um, you have to be willing to, to leave all of these, not just the places but the relationships. And Jesus says, if you do that, 
you get them back. You can never outgive God. And so all the sacrifice, all the leaving that we see, we become better. We receive more than what we left. Now that's not a principle to take and say, well, okay, I can give, if I give God $10,000, he's going to give me 20 or 100. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is we get rid of all that stuff and God will supply your needs and you won't have to rely on all that. He'll take care of you if you trust him. So we have the testimony of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Paul chapter 3, Paul is giving his, um, his credentials, his CV, all of his things that he's done, all of his qualifications, all of that sort of thing. And then in verse 7 he says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. And so he's saying, as Christian people, he's writing to the church at Philippi, if we want to share and experience the resurrection life of Christ, we have to share in that death that he died to everything. And that's what he calls us to. Abraham, leave everything that gives you value, meaning, and purpose and put your complete, total trust and confidence in me and what I'm going to do in your life wasn't any easier for Abraham than it is for you or for me. But he believed God and he believed on it enough to act on it. Now he's not saying that all of us need to run out and sell our houses and all that kind of, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is we need to get our priorities right and make sure things are in their proper place. And if we are called upon to lose them for whatever reason, we can do it with no regrets. It's stuff. You can't take it with you. None of it. None of it. Relationships, they're going to be broken, at least for a while, at death. So he's telling us, priorities right. God is the one who guides us. He's the one who pulls us together. He's the one who ministers to us. And Paul says, I count everything that I've lost as rubbish because I understand the value of what God has given me. So what's the difference between getting and receiving? You know, I can work hard and I can get what I've earned. 
or I can receive something as a free gift. And that makes a big difference. Paul asked the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you hadn't? <laughs> Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. And the psalmist says, yes, Lord, all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. He gives us the abilities. And so it's all gift. So Abraham was constantly leaving because he was a nomad. He was called to walk up and down and through the breadth of the land, and he did his whole life. So there was a constant, a constant leaving for him, a constant cleansing from the toxins of acquisition. In each leaving, Abraham became more. He was emptying in order to be fulfilled. A letting go of the cramped self-will opens us up to the great expansiveness of God's grace. A God-willed life, a life of faith. So sacrifice then is transformed from a concept of loss to one of affirmation. And every sacrifice, it is a sacrifice. It costs. It costs you. It costs me. Every sacrifice. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a sacrifice, would it? A sacrifice is a sacrifice. It's costly. But in the process, every time Abraham made that sacrifice, he got a tremendous affirmation from God, tremendous revelation of pulling him in deeper and closer to who he is. And Abraham begins to discover as he learns who God is, he begins to understand who he is. So sacrifice is to faith what eating is to nutrition. You can know all about nutrition, but it's not going to help you unless you follow it. <laughs> it's the act of doing it that makes it effective. That's what transforms us and imparts life and health. But it's effective only when practiced. So God is working within us. Uh, he's calling us like he's calling Abraham to leave everything in the sense of not drawing our value, our purpose, our direction from the things and the people and the culture around us, but to focus ourselves on the pole star, the north star of the cross of Christ, and to let him be our orientation and our direction and our purpose and let him make a name for us that will be far better than any name that we can make for ourselves and leave a legacy that's far more lasting than just possessions, a life of faith. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for these witnesses who've lived their life in much the same context that we find ourselves. And for the testimony of your faithfulness to them, we can look at the life of Abraham and we call him a man of faith, but he wasn't one at the beginning. But you made him one. And all through the ups and downs of his life, you were dealing with him, cleansing and purging, creating a greater capacity to know you and understand you. 
And by the end of his life, Abraham was called the friend of God. Lord, I pray that that would be true for us. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.